Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's episode of Deep Dive, I'm joined by Joy James, and this is her second appearance on the show. She's a political philosopher and the Ebenezer Fitch Professor of Humanities at Williams College. She's the author and co-editor of countless books, which given our time, I won't get into all in the introduction, but the book we'll be spending most of our time on today is called The New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency and the Afterlife of Erica Garner. And it is beyond pleasure to have Joy join me on the deep dive. How are you? Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy 2024. Hopefully we'll have some wins here. Um, But thanks again for inviting me to join you in dialogue and conversation. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time, and it couldn't be a more appropriate time given sort of the new cycle that we're in. We're recording this a little like on the 10th of January, a little bit after the holidays. Obviously, it's been it's been filled with a lot of news in the political space, in the academic space. And even though I, in my original preparation for our conversation, I didn't expect to be talking about Claudine Gay, the now former president of, of Harvard. But given the material within the book and the way we're going to be talking about a modern abolitionist movement, I did want to leave some space to discuss the fact that she she was forced to resign from Harvard. And I'll say as a preamble, her her politics are, are not my politics. I'm far more progressive than I would consider her to be. But I do feel that her having to force to resign from Harvard was incredibly unfair and, and pushed by. To call them bad actors is too kind to bad actors. These are nefarious, horrible people with no good intention toward Harvard to the extent that it needs it the academy to the extent that it needs it, but definitely not Black people. So those are all my opinions. <laughs> now, I want to give you an opportunity as as someone who is is studied in this space, uh, incredible thinker around the politics and culture of the academy. I wanted to get your thoughts on her having to resign. This is interesting for me, right? Because often when I think of my research, my work, my organizing the politics, it's usually left of liberalism. Like it's not always mainstream because I'm trying to look at structures and undo structures. But I must say the way in which she was maltreated, the kind of abuse that was piled up top of her over and over again, the challenges to her intellect. I mean, look, she got a doctorate from Harvard. They don't give them out like at the grocery stores or with coupons. So obviously she did the work, she earned, you know, her status. But the violence arrayed against her, like, you know, the rhetorical, but also I'm sure there were death threats and everything else that comes with that. Whenever you have a white nationalist power move, it, it often looks to me like it turns into a feeding frenzy. That it was painful, obviously, for her, for her colleagues, for her family. 
but that pain radiated out, right? And so people who don't know her personally, people who would not have the same alignment in politics, meaning that basic, you know, ethical politics she has, but would look for stronger demands for transformation, not just assimilation. And of course, Harvard is a multi-billion dollar corporate player, right? With the imprint of a kind of um, royal academic pedigree. But you know, for some reason, Malcolm's coming in my mind between house and field. And even though she was good to the corporation, I mean, I think people forget that people in the house are also disposable. And so the attacks on her were attacks not against only against diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's kind of, for me, at some basic level in terms of human interaction, if you made it aligned with nature, it's an attack on clean air and clear water and not polluting the soil. Like, you know, the diversity equity is not really about a competition scheme with white nationalists, but it is about unseating white power as a predatory formation. And she was doing the basic job inside the corporation to stabilize it and prepare it right, to move past violent denigration, anti-scholarship, book mandates, everything that's lined up, right, to decimate any kind of rigor in the academy. She was loyal to the corporation. The corporation backed her as long as they thought they could or should. Some 700 plus faculty signed a letter, but she was vulnerable. She was vulnerable to a billionaire class. She was vulnerable to a media, even the liberal media. They kept replaying this script over and over again to sell papers or clicks. And she was incredibly vulnerable to white nationalists. Now, whether white nationalists are Christian-based or the white nationalists see themselves as Zionists, right, and strong defenders of Israel as a bifurcated, also known as an apartheid state, with an occupation of Palestinians, you know, it can seem, I mean, if we keep adding things on the table, it seems like it's very complicated. But for me, it's very simple. It's someone who had basic principles being attacked violently and continuously until, like, the use of billionaire money and the use of slander was able to marginalize her and push her out of the office of being president at Harvard University. The first black president at Harvard University, the second female or woman president at Harvard University, and Harvard University has been around for centuries. It's as old as the, as the story itself. And I, and I think, like you said very eloquently at the beginning, that this this pain of these things resonated out beyond her personal experience and, and Harvard experience. As I said jokingly before we got on a call, I don't care about Harvard, right? I didn't go there and all the rest of that. So I have no allegiance to it. So it's not about upholding that as some hallowed idea or institution. But I think those of us, whether we've been in whatever space we've been in, have been used to being questioned 
and having our our credentials looked at with the side eye, right? Like I, I think mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and, and I've maintained this, one of the failures of DEI is that beyond the, the number game that we play, the, most people don't want us in these spaces at all. And, and to the extent that they do, they only feel comfortable with the few exceptions, the people like her, right? She would be one of those exceptional people until they're not exceptional. So I think that's part of what resonated with me is this idea that we've all kind of been there. Um, and I, I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on that liberalism as compared to movements that you describe in your book that are out of those spaces. They're so far beyond them in a way. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. That's such a good, you know, query or question to put on the table because I don't, you know, I'm not trying to bash liberalism, but I see the constraints around it, which really it it is not an endeavor in, in terms of the construct and the the playbook. It's not an endeavor for basic transformation. It doesn't really challenge power structures. It accommodates you to power structure and then you work your way up the ranks and then hopefully you're able to do something that's going to be benign or supportive. But the the base of the power does not go to the mass, right? And particularly when you're talking about these Ivy League universities and colleges, you know, I teach at a place, right? Where, you know, they're beyond millionaire endowments, like they're doing billionaire endowments. What would happen if we could keep a job and also be fierce in terms of our imagination and in terms of pushing for transformation? Not just to bring diversity to a structure that has a hierarchy that is not going to bend to the needs of the mass, right? but to try to undo the infrastructure as we have it and make it something new, right? Which was not her job. You know, I'm not asking her to do something that was not her job. And she was getting paid, well paid to be the, I'm not saying she was running the corporation. She was not, right? There's a board. I mean, like every corporation, there's a board. But she was there as an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, Those are important things, but they're not synonyms for social justice, economic justice, and the liberation of subjugated peoples. That's not, it's so what equity and inclusion, diversity, you know, it's like indigenous rights, the rights of, you know, people immigrating with, you know, the ones who are not, you know, Nordic or coming from Europe who seem to have a past with Trump and company. And it looks like Biden's pretty much aligned. Yeah, with he's some the same. Trump's. Yeah, it's the same. He's just like, he's just somebody who said Obama was clean and well-spoken, which I guess is more than Trump has said about Black people, right? But if you go for like those little pats on the head, it's still not power. So equity, you know, inclusion, whatever, that's not real power. Real power would be the ability to unionize. Real power would be the ability to determine curricula so that they represented everyone, not just sort of selectively we put you into these silos, right? Well, here are the diversity studies, and now we're going to try to hold on to them because the 
reactionaries want to eviscerate them as they want to eviscerate history. Or Nikki Haley can't say slavery, you know, or can't acknowledge certain realities. Yeah. When talking about the Civil War, we have to dance around these issues. Yeah. Well, we don't want to offend white sensibilities. And I'm not talking about all white sensibilities, but here's the thing. White nationalists have reconfigured themselves as victims, which is kind of historic what they've always done, right? That's like how they, you know, you can spark a genocide. You know, you're polluting our blood. We will not be replaced, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe Stefanik, who grilled um, all four women presidents, that was interesting for me. Yeah, all women. They were all women. And they, of course, had a woman do so. Uh, Stefanik is a New York congresswoman, right? I, our imagination has to be larger and our bitterness has to be used for more productive means, which I mean, essentially, we have to be bold in our demands. Like if, if the demand is that you get to keep your job, which would be nice, you know, we all need medical care. We should have universal care. We don't. But let's just like, let's stay with where you and I hang out, which elite academia. It seems to me like one of the, pursuits was that we just get in and then we'd be able to stay as long, as long as we can until we retire. Like that's a goal. And I'm not dismissing it as a goal. I just will say it's not a very lofty one. It's not very inclusive with the working class, right? And the working poor. It's not grounded in Black liberation struggle because people hate Black liberation struggles, you know, from COINTELPRO, FBI, to local NYPD and others the notion that we would be autonomous, that we could keep our culture, cultivate it, raise our kids, take care of our elders without constantly being humiliated, hunted, or dispossessed. So like, you can't ask a Harvard University president to like fix the world, but you can ask the leadership of these elite sites to present a cogent, clear analysis of how the goal is not to get into elite silos, but the goal is to make a serious commitment, I'm gonna use the language of liberals, a serious commitment to civil rights and human rights. And under those conditions, it doesn't matter what the attorneys say to say or what was written down with the PR focus group, you simply say all genocides are reprehensible. We're not gonna rank them, but we're gonna note the material reality. And to the extent that the United States is, are not all the citizenry, but let's just say the government and this particular administration and the administrations before are willing to spend billions of our dollars to accelerate wars where the majority of the people maimed and murdered are civilians, that tells you that we have an internal problem that's much more serious than whatever happens at Harvard. Absolutely. And, and I think that gives us the perfect segue it, to get more into the the depth of the book, and when when you talked about those expanding these imaginations beyond the way liberals think about things, I've, I've found that that is there's page upon page upon page upon that in the book. There's reflections on our on our history that are recontextualized. Some of that near history, you spend a lot of time obviously talking about Eric Garner and his daughter, Erica Garner, both lost to similar anti-Black violence. Her as an activist, him obviously as a victim, um, murdered by NYPD. And 
so there's that near history, but then there is the, the deeper, deeper, richer, longer contextualized history of resistance movements. And so I, I found the book filled with an invitation to an, another way forward, a different sort of imagination. And so I, I feel bad because there's so many things I want to ask. I want to ask you to define, I read the book, so I had the virtue of going through it, but to our listeners, they might not be as familiar with the terminology. And I think the terminology that you use is so important. So I want to give you an opportunity to, to share a little bit about New Bones Abolition, why you chose that as the title, and to contrast it with kind of, I won't say commercial abolition movement, but maybe mainstream. I don't have a good language for it. Yeah, well, but, but, yeah, more popularized versions. Okay, of, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. Thank you for the assist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying, you know, this this book is, is challenging. It was very challenging to write. It was a nightmare to write, actually. I had to keep doing it. And then, you know, a lot is going on in the world at the same time. And so, as you know, as people who read and people who write, we don't want to be severed from the material world of struggle either. But sometimes we have to go into a silo to be able to comprehend and articulate and write about something. But the title of the book came from Lucille Clifton, African-American poet who transitioned a number of years ago. It's a very short poem. It's titled New Poems. Unfortunately, I'm not a great reader, but I love this poem. And this is why it the book opens with it, and it's why it's key to the title. So New Bones is written by Lucille Clifton. We will wear new bones again. We will leave these rainy days, break out through another mouth into sun and honey time. Worlds buzz over us like bees. We be splendid in new bones. Other people think they know how long life is, how strong life is. We know. So in some ways, New Bones Abolition is a confirmation of what we already know collectively. And that's why it has this sort of expansive um, road. You know, think of an accordion, like you kind of look at it and it's folded together. It's like, oh, this is like, it's going to take this much time or this much space. And then you start to see it expand. And that's what happened in the writing. I thought, okay, this is going to be a quick book. Going to talk about Erica Gardner. You transitioned at age 27, four months after she gave birth to her second child, named after her father, Eric Gardner, who died from chest compression and chokehold on a street in Staten Island in 2014, right? And so I thought that the tragedies and the, the contempt, because it's not just the death, it's what happens after he's killed by the NYPD, how the family is dishonored, how they drag the case out, right? But, you know, books take time because they're living entities. And they're just an expression of our minds and our desires. And what I realized, you know, as the title of the book grew, that this was going to be more about just trying to remember Erica Gardner. Because I was a bit aghast when I found that she had died. And this is December 2017, right? I had no idea that her her health was not, you know, stable, but I had been living in Harlem. So I heard the chants and the marches. I went when I could, right? So there was a connection. But I realized it's not just our grief 
or are shocked. Like we've not, you know, we've talked about Claudine Gay losing a job and that was a bit of a shock, obviously not about a physical transition, right? But it's still a bit of a shock in terms of the violence arrayed against Black people, Black women, you know, Black men, Black non-binary folks. So in this attempt to do this book, I realized I had to organize it into three parts. So the first part part is very theoretical, I think, in part because I'm talking about the captive maternal. So the entire, the total title is Captive Maternal Agency and the Afterlife of Erica Gardner. That's the subtitle from New Bones Abolition. So New Bones Abolition is an attempt to talk about abolition, but not in the general academic realm, because I'm not citing academics as key figures here. Erica Gardner and the organizers, you know, on the ground are the teachers. And so it's how, as an academic, somebody who's been in the industry for decades, I can understand that the knowledge doesn't really reside with me. I'm just chronicling it. I'm like, as I said, I'm a librarian. Like I'm archiving, I'm collecting, I want to keep things visible. But the agency really belongs to Erica Gardner. But to get to her in the second part, the third part is on international struggles, how they link to U.S. national struggles, police repression. We have to grapple this persona of the captive maternal and the persona of Black female agency. And so what I do in the first chapter is I say that Black feminists can be captive maternals, but it is complicated. So some people see me as bashing Black feminism, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to look at how we move through time and space in terms of organizing, providing protections to us, ourselves individually, collectively as families, collectively as social orders or communities, and dealing with the repression of the state, white supremacy, and nationalism. So I started to differentiate between different types of Black women and different types of Black feminism. I do not argue that Black feminism leads the way. In the book, I talk about state feminism, and I start to point out how easily it is for Black feminism to be captive or become a capture of state feminism. And if I were to go back to Claudine Gay, I mean, who I support her right to be able to keep her job, unfortunately she was not, I would say that the politics that she embraced were very aligned with state feminism, which is going to be pro-capitalism and which is going to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, not radical movements to take apart capitalism, colonialism, and white nationalism. And this interrogation in the first part, I'm very clear. I'm not trying to name or misname Erica Garner. I mean, she has an identity. She belongs to a family. She belongs to a cadre of people who loved her and who fought with her right, for justice. What I'm looking at is kind of a theoretical deep dive of who we are in relationship to struggle. And if we think again about the captive maternal as having stages, it's not enough to be progressive. So the first stage is caretaking and definitely Claudine Gay was at that first stage. The second stage would be protest. And this is aligned with Black Lives Matter as well, which is you know seen as organizer-led by multiple people, but it has those three iconic um, feminist women, you know, that that became the, the visuals for it, right? So the first layer, it's going to be 
caretaking, which we all do to our families, ourselves, to our communities. The second to protest when we see these intrusions, denigration, exploitation. The third would be a movement making. And that is what Black Lives Matter became as a transition. A lot from the ground was pushing it towards confrontation with police violence and with the state and its manipulations of law that disproportionately targeted people of color, Black people, people, you know, who are neurodiverse and people who were not wealthy. But once you get to the movement making, as you see, it can be flooded by millions of dollars or billions of dollars so that nonprofits start to, quote, steer the movement and define it. And what they're doing is just turning it back into the standing structures, which are liberal or neoliberal. And so I think a lot about Maranage, how we go and we create these autonomous zones of self-care, of protests, of organizing, but not ones that are easily infiltrated by the state or the nonprofit corporation. That is where I saw Erica Gardner, that she and her cadre were creating a political Maranage. And so where other people would defer to Mayor de Blasio, the mayor of New York City at the time, Governor Cuomo, then the governor at the time, President Obama. Erica Gardner got into verbal interactions, is the nicest way I can pose it, with all levels of government, because all levels of government were betraying not just her family, but the people persecuted by predatory policing, right? So after Maranaj, this is the last step or stage that I'll talk about, Maranaj is prohibited. So think if Claudine Gay had gone rogue and said, I condemn all forms of genocide, but by the way, I'm tired of this white nationalist, you know, sentiment, but also aggression, trying to dismantle education and penalize students who are ethical, which she didn't go down that route, right? Because she was not allowed to. That was not the job description, description she had. But for organizers, activists, people who are in resistance, we can go down any and every stage. And Erica Gardner went to those last stages of Maranage. But the state always represses Maranage because autonomy is prohibited for resistance. You can do your autonomous thing as long as it fits within the larger framework set established by state and corporation. But if you're like, let's think of something new, like I want to go back to the Panthers. And I kind of mentioned the Panthers a bit in the text, even though it's not predominantly about them. But remember the breakfast programs. I mean, feeding children and their families, that was something the community did without asking for permission from the state. And then after the police shoot up, you know, the headquarters pour the milk out on the floor, burn the cereal, which is to destroy what we create. Then the U.S. Department of Agriculture finally has like free breakfast programs, right? But our ability to reinvent ourselves and to love ourselves, this is what New Bones Abolition is. It's almost like the Urubus, right? It ends with about the serpent that devours its tail. The destruction leads to rebirth and resurrection. And so I see Erica Garner as someone still alive with us as an ancestor, someone we need to meditate upon. And so our new bones, as Lucille Clifton said, we know what it means to grow new bones even when we're broken. I, I want to go back a little bit because there's there's so much in there and I'm and I'm keeping an eye on the time as well. Um because one of the things you you mentioned this in in your in your in your statement, but I want to go a little deeper onto it, which is 
the going into the movement making, it becomes very easy or becomes easier for there to be entry into these um, maybe formerly radical spaces. And that helps to dilute the message. Like we've seen this so many times, you know? And I'm curious if in your mind, it has become easier in a way to, to make those sort of infiltrations in the sense that, you know, we, we, to the extent listeners might know about the history of COINTELPRO, you mentioned it a little earlier, you know, people were sent into many movements to literally work from the inside, to inform, to destroy, to help seed sows of discord and, and all of those, those things. Nowadays, in more digital spaces, some would say that same thing happens, right? Bots are alive, pretending to be Black people, talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. It becomes easier, in my mind, maybe, for folks to get seduced into the cocktail scene. You know, they they get us with the canapes and the and the good wine. You know, and the red carpet that becomes hard to 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 sometimes say no to. So I'm um, I'm joking a little bit, but I'm curious your your perspective on as we move forward. Um, how how do we protect these spaces when? the other side is increasingly seductive Un- until okay. it's not, you know, Ibrahim until Kendi had a good run. <laughs> yeah. But, but see, but there's a sadness there too. Right. And I'm trying to sort out, I mean, cause I'm angry so often like with these war crimes and also so angry with being, you know, all the material benefits we have belonging to an empire. Well, that's nice. Right even though it's dysfunctional for poor people, working people, incarcerated. But then the flip side of it is that we're linked to carnage, like to mass death. Like it's great that we're, you know, we have the passport and we have the ID and we're not, you know, we're not in a so-called third world, whatever. But like, yo, we kill a lot of people, meaning we being the United States and with our tax dollars. Yeah, it's so, done in our in our name. If not, we're not name. the ones pushing the button, but we live here. We're citizens of the country that's doing it. Yeah, and so one of the things to grapple with is while we're oppressed by the state, we are beneficiaries of its surplus, right? But then some people, I feel, and I, you know, I could just talk about myself, right? Our notion of safety is to embed in powerful entities. This is why you want to work for the big corporation or the big nonprofit, right? You know, it's just, you know, part of it is just the material reality of like, I need comprehensive healthcare because I have fragile minors or my elders need X, Y, and Z. But I think they've gotten into our psyche that the notion of belonging means that we must belong in elite formation. And to the extent that nonprofit largesse or nonprofit steerage or whatever has made itself into a brand, then individuals want to be a brand too. And so they be- they want to belong to the corporation. They kind of legitimize it by saying, oh, it says nonprofit in front of it, right? And then all this money that's given out, I mean, I, I've, I'm sure I've alienated quite a number of people in the book without naming them, but I named these entities, right? The freedom scholars, like for a quarter of a million to be a freedom scholar, what is, I was like, what is that? Then you find out that one of their bankers 
is actually the Casey Foundation that made their wealth through foster care removal, which is monetizing largely Black children, Indigenous children, poor children. So again, it's, look, the money's dirty, all right? Some back in the day, and I was a Ford Foundation um, dissertation fellow, wasn't quite clear what that meant historically, but back in the day, Ford Foundation, um, based on the scholarship that I've seen, you know, was in line and worked with the CIA that was destroying liberation movements across the globe. So we're caught in, the, in, in, a, in a contradiction. And so how would we extract ourselves? And I think this is why I've just started to focus on Maranage. Maranage cannot be a nonprofit. I don't care what kind of autonomy you think you have around the table. If your funder is tied to a hedge fund or if your funder lobbies with the DNC or if you're, you know, that's a long freaking list, you know the list, then you do not have autonomy. Now, should you be able to feed your family and have health insurance? Absolutely. But loyalty, I think this is what I was trying to do in New Bones Abolition. What is our definition of loyalty and to whom? And to have a prestigious bank job or a prestigious nonprofit job that I'm just here for the people those two are very closely aligned, just like working for the State Department or the CIA, capturing the image of Harriet Tubman and putting her statue in the quad and saying she works for us. Our whole zone is a zone of capture. What New Bones Abolition is trying to figure out is how we could extra, how to say that word? Um, there's two ways to say it, so I'm going to just skip it because I don't think either one. How we could escape. That's it. I'm starting to see us as intellectuals to be fugitives who are running on a treadmill. Like we're running in place and we're getting exhausted and we're sweating and we're concerned and stuff. But we never realize that the real run is to get off the conveyor belt or the treadmill and make a move for the door and to try to figure out whether we do so with our names on everything or we do it anonymously that we support serious resistance to predatory power. I want to talk about resistance. You did something I thought was very interesting because you you talk a lot about the the concept of um, agape, this 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 notion of communal care, communal community love. It's it's love as political will is is how the terminology you use in the book. And but then in, in other parts of the book, when you when you talk about marinage and, and that and that getting outside of these systems of these systems, it's viewed very much as um, war resistance. And I'm I'm always in in my own work reluctant to use um, metaphors that kind of reinforce what I view as a hyper-military, hyper-violent um, society. So we're always talking about storming a beach, taking a hill, you know, all these kind of sports, football kind of things which are also analogous to war. So it's not a, a critique of that. I found it very interesting. And and you had a, a, a Boots Riley quote in there. Um, like, we were in a war before we... What was it? Um, before, before we fought, we fought one. Before we fought one. Yeah, that's from and, the coup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as I was reading it, I was totally in agreement with the metaphor, but I'm I'm curious as to how you managed to kind of align and square those those two realities of the the love notion of it in community and care, but also understanding that we are in a in a in a war resistant movement. 
at the same time. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, I think that's where people are puzzled by what I'm saying or writing or they're put off by it, right? So for me, none of it is performative. I've said in other places, I grew up with a military intelligence officer. Uh, When he died, he was a retired lieutenant colonel and he was deployed in multiple um, zones outside the U.S. to squash liberation movements. And then I believe he also was in Detroit and that was a black liberation movement as well. So the local police couldn't have it, ha, you know, deal with the Detroit rebellion based on what I remember. And the National Guard couldn't do it. So they had to call in the 101st Airborne. And I believe, you know, I don't try to remember everything about my parents because it's not all rosy, but I believe, you know, my father was in 101st Airborne. I was also in ROTC for years. So for me, I'm not using, I'm not trying to use metaphors. Maybe unconsciously I am or something, but it's like, you know, I grew up on military bases. I like, I watch people parachute. I watch people shoot. I shoot, right? It's just like, there's something about it that is just normative. Like, oh, this is what life is about. Like it's violence, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of domestic violence or DV among cops and among the military because they're trained to do absolutely, And they don't remember like, oh, you crossed the line. Even in Let's talk, let's be real. The violence they do in those wars, generally it's against other civilians. That's how war works. The majority of the casualties, right, are going to be civilians. They're not going to be armed combatants, right? So if we were to face that reality and that we have one of the most aggressive military apparatuses in the world, and it's heavily financed because we're paying for it, or our treasury is, we can also acknowledge that we love. And I don't think we have to be maudlin or sentimental about either one of them. I don't think you have to get, I'm not talking about romantic love. I never said I was. It's nice. That's not what I'm talking about, right? It's, there's a, a, how to say this? See, for me, the military starts seeping into the spiritual, the religious, or they're both start mixing up together. And I'm like having a difficult time separating, but maybe I'm not supposed to. Because I also believe in your material experience shapes your consciousness. And it's better that you know what the deed looks like on the ground that you just read it in a book and start becoming an expert based on what you read in a text, right? So based on what I've seen, including like going to Nicaragua, um, visiting refugee camps, you know, meeting people who've been like macheted by Contras, financed by U.S. taxpayer, you know, moving around, seeing different things. When I get to the point of writing in this book, I'm a, I'm acknowledging that I have to be humbled by love. And then there has to be some restraints. This is not about however you've been wounded, whatever you lost, that you just engage in carnage. So there's a discipline. This is political will. And actually that the language of agape is political will came from Renaissance Church in Harlem when I was listening to Pastor Jordan one day. Actually, I gave him a copy of the book. I left it, you know, after um, service one day. I very much, maybe it's because of the military background. Maybe it's just about this is what you do to become an academic who can be productive on certain levels. Self-discipline is real. And your emotional landscape is real too. You can hate, you can be bitter, you can, but, and this is where I think I've alienated like some of the grad students or the younger people who say that I'm like, not a serious person or not a serious radical or whatever. No, and I don't care. I mean, like, I'm not, I don't have a brand 
and you guys don't pay my bills. <laughs> I mean, come on. So I'm I'm kind of listening, but then I stop listening. It's like, I hope you find your path. And if my work is useful, use it. If it doesn't, then ignore it. But if you're trying to destabilize it by saying that it's shaped by sentimentality, then you misread everything. I'm writing about stuff that, it, you know, I've seen people I've known who've been fighters, who've done decades in prison because they fought with the Black Liberation Army after the FBI and the local police were trying to assassinate them and their comrades, meeting people in other zones who can tell you candidly but won't say it in front of a crowd, this is their assessment of how the Black Liberation Ar- Army or the revolutionary struggle was fought, and these were the weaknesses, but also the formidable predatory violence from the state. So when, if it's like a jigsaw puzzle, we have all these pieces and we try to put them together. That's what I tried to do in New Bones Abolition. And we need love and we need resistance. Not everybody is a combatant. Like George Jackson keeps circling back and I never met him, right? But I do know people who were close to him. And we don't even have the same politics because they rarely mention him, right? But I end up like reading about him, meditating about him, thinking about dragon philosophers, talking to panthers that I know from Harlem who held him in such esteem, right? And I see that love moves beyond years and beyond all kinds of categories. So does hatred. I'm just saying that hatred does not have the kind of productivity that I was looking for. Doesn't mean I don't hate, but it means that I discipline myself to the best of my ability to think of resistance and to wage it in all forms that we're entitled to, to wage it in a way that political will shaped through agape allows us to not constantly move into performative aspects of care, which actually turn to be destructive and don't even help in security apparatuses or political education. And I, I want to jump in there to kind of continue on that on that road a little bit, because I, I think oftentimes, and this is me as an observer, we, particularly as Black people, are often called upon to be supernaturally gracious in in our response, in our reaction. We're not often allowed to be angry. And, and those of us who are angry, quote unquote angry, are relegated to certain spaces. And, and you had a line in the book where you, where you say you rather, you curse rather than curtsy. Yeah. And, and I, I liked that. It's a good turn of phrase, but I, I liked that because in my mind, it pushed back against that notion that we always have to be so accommodating. And, and so I wanted to, to just, give you an opportunity to to share more about that or or expand on on that notion that's that's how i took it as i as i read through the book i know i so appreciate your questions almost like free therapy right yeah so there's a part in in the text where i'm invited to go to poli sci american political science association on the west coast and younger people i'm like okay and it was a flawless at the table right you know asking the questions, responding, like the decorum, everything is there, being helpful for them developing, you know, their research, et cetera. Then we go to lunch and then someone mentions to me that, and so this is a number of years ago. So this would be the second leg of the Obama administration, right? Mm -hmm. 2014 or 2015 or something like that. 
they sort of mentioned that academics are polishing Obama's rhetoric or reading texts or rewriting texts to make it sound like he's much more committed to the ground, to the working class, to Black people, to people being harassed by the police. And then over lunch, I just sort of blurred out like a swear word. And at first I'm sort of mortified because I think I'm supposed to be a role model. Thank goodness, I no longer think of that. <laughs> but it's like, oh, I'm supposed to stand for decency and civility despite carnage and constant abuse. Like the question is, can you, can you curse out your abuser? Or are you just immobilized in a kind of um, sadness and reticence and hopefulness somehow it all gets mixed in together that things are going to change without a fight, right? Like even if you think of Frederick Douglass, that epic fight that he had with his slave, you know, overseer, and some people are like, why didn't you kill him? And I say, well, he didn't want to. Like, you know, don't push him. It's an ancestor. He did what he thought was best. But he actually fought, right? His antagonists. And so what I realized in the academy, there I was engaged in a lot of performance and I thought I was radical, right? <laughs> but I was like holding things in and trying to be polite and like, let's w- help people work up the career ladder. Like I climbed it and I'm sure there was some assistance to it. But it, it never really was authentic. And I'm not saying that you should get on the top of the table and start cursing left and right, but we should be able to articulate betrayal. And so that's all the cursing was, you know. And this thing when I went to Sao Paulo, like after Erica Garner died, I refused to go anywhere to give a talk unless it was going to be about Erica Garner. So I ended up giving talks on campus at Williams and other universities and a jurist, um, international attorneys and judges were in Sao Paulo. And I was invited to be a keynote. And then these like really racist, I wasn't always funny right now, but it is. Anyway, these hyper racist white male uh, attorneys like kind of burst in the door and started making a ruckus to detract from my keynote. And it was different. I didn't curse at anything, but I just went dead cold inside. You know, my cursing was like my brain. Like I had every word and, you know, mostly just in one language, right? Because I'm not really good (laughs) with Portuguese. But I was like calling them all kinds of names, but still giving my talk on Erica Gardner and showing the clip of that powerful political campaign ad that she did for Bernie Sanders. He didn't ask her to do it. She tweeted to him and then filmed something in her apartment with her seven-year-old daughter, you know, talking about Rosa Parks was an activist, mommy's an activist too, and then moved straight on to the murder of her father and the murders of others, right? And so we have flexibility, but I think we also have reticence. And honestly, I'm, I'm no longer ashamed of blurting things out that I believe to be true, and they don't come out in a bougie way of civility I mean, you know, look, come on, it's barbaric. We're asked or told to be hyper-civil, which means deferential, to one of the most violent formations, right? If you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of empire, this is the largest or greatest empire in world history, supposedly. But that means it's killed more people, literally. And the one thing to think about it, like what I would curse about right now, but, you know, I wrote, I was writing a couple of pieces 
in um, Harvard Law's inquest. And I ended up looking at Cop City, you know, where Georgia's state troopers shot Totogita 57 times and then blamed him on his own murder. And then they were exonerated. But in, you know, thinking of that, I was doing a deep dive and I was like, well, what was Lyndon Johnson doing as president? He was signing those civil rights, you know, laws that we needed, gave the pen to King. But my research also showed the Great Society where we were going to be inclusive, just like, you know, you're going to have the first black female president at Harvard in, what, 300 years or something. So, but what he was also doing based on the research is that, um, He was also finding money to pay mercenaries to assassinate African intellectuals and who are not even resistance fighters, as well as resistance fighters in the 1960s to shore up the apartheid regime. So we get crumbs from the table in the U.S. And then across the globe, they destabilize all liberation movements. And that's kind of the third and last part of New Bones Abolition. We will not survive as a people unless we link up with international struggle, unless we understand that apartheid is a global project, just as ethnic cleansing is, right? And genocide is. And we've had our own experiences with those three, but there's no way we're going to be like elevated beyond the carnage just because we work well with corporate entities or with the state. Like Lloyd Austin, I don't know why he didn't tell anybody he was sick and where he went, but I'm sure as a Black person, he had his reasons. So I'm like, I mean, again, I know the military, so what he does is not what I advocate for, but I think we all have our personal turmoil about whether or not we want new bones or we just want the brittle ones that we get from the state and its predatory desires. Absolutely. We got to we got to build more new bones in 2024 and beyond. I, I, I want to get you out on on that. I, I want to get to the mm-hmm. drop real quick, which is just an opportunity for us to share um, anything at all for our listeners to to get into. My drop is is very quickly. Um, it's called Scallywag and it's oh, yeah. a it's an online magazine. I, I love it. It's It's really I don't know. I, I I stumbled upon it years ago on Twitter. And since I did that, it's just been one of my go-to magazines because it writes about so many of, of movements of, of Black people, of liberation, of new ideas, particularly from places where people don't think Black people are. Meaning it's, it's a lot of writers from Appalachia, West Virginia, um, Kentucky, you know, these places where, again, we're not supposed to be, um, but yet our, our voices are there and, and they're talking about issues that I think are very important. So my drop is check out Scallywag. It's available online and, and please support them. They do have a paid subscription, all that good stuff. So that's my yeah. drop. So I'm going to you echo up. your drop. Yeah, I'm going to say Scallywag. Um, actually, okay. they did a whole form on the captive maternal. And I wrote a short piece that said the captive maternal is a function, not an identity. So I'm moving away from identity markers because I think collectively mm-hmm. as people, we're incredibly complex and the standard language doesn't work for us. There was also a piece that was done about a year or so ago with Deshaun Harrison, who's an editor of Scalawag, absolutely brilliant, and Samaria Rice. So 2014, when Eric Gardner was killed by the police, it was also the same year that Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson by the police, the 18-year-old, by Darren Wilson, and that the 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot and killed by Timothy 
Loman, I believe, in Ohio. Yeah, in Ohio. Yeah. And so the three of us, um, Samaria Rice, Deshaun Harrison, and I, we pieced together this thing about really whether or not you can trust the legalism of the state, if the legal apparatus ever brings justice. And obviously in these deaths that we've talked, you know, the, the, the ones that I mentioned, you know, granted that after Erica Gardner was deceased, the state of New York or the city of New York finally paid the family some kind of compensation. I believe it was over five million, whatever. That doesn't resurrect a loved one, right? But I think we should keep reading like these autonomous papers. Scalawag is one of them that we should keep writing. We should keep reading. We should keep organizing. But think increasingly as we face pretty rapidly growing proto-fascist entities that what we've been doing to stay conventionally stay safe and to be the house people, as Malcolm says, obviously that's not going to save us. And the solidarity would need Absolutely. to take some risk to think about love as tied to resistance and maybe scale back our nitpicking on each other. Like nobody has a definitive brand and some people don't even want a brand. Nobody has a definitive lexicon. But if we have shared love and desire to live in a world of safety and equity, like that our kids get to grow up without being hunted, or have, you know, their nervous system pretty altered like ours have been because of the nonstop stressors, then that will be a world that we will have to fight for. And I think we're open to the Absolutely. fight, whether or not we want the vulnerabilities and the casualties that come, you know, lost your job, which is probably for some people the least problem, that maybe in our support and love for each other, we can stabilize each other. And figure out if we want agape or whatever you want to call it, whatever love that allows us to provide defenses for ourselves, our communities, and a way forward to stabilize our lives and the lives of others against predatory violence and consumption. I mean, I, this is a, a highlight conversation to kick off the year. I, Joe, I can't thank you enough for for spending time. We could have. We could keep going, but I know you got a hard stop and I got to let you do, I got to let you do your next thing. Um, again, the book is called New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency and the Afterlife of Erica Garner. It oh, is one thing. And the proceeds go to Prison Radio, which supports Mumia Abul-Jamal and other incarcerated people. So just so you know, like if you decide to purchase the book, it's published by Common Notions, which is a small progressive press in Philly and Brooklyn, that all proceeds go to the incarcerated. I did not know that. That is an extra, that's extra incentive to, to go out there, grab a copy of the book. It will, it will be a, a reading experience that I think will live with you far longer than when you've closed the last page. Joy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to, to joining me for the second time on the deep dive. And I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to hope that there's a third in our future and more. <laughs> There, yeah, I, contextualizing Angela Davis, the agency and identity of an icon drops in two weeks from Bloomsbury Press. So maybe a couple months down the road, we could. It's a it's a very kind, compassionate book, but it puts things in context. So if you want to keep talking, I'm here. Okay. Okay. All right. We 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 heard it here. 
our third time is going to be covering your new book. So I'm going to be reaching out to you about getting that one. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait for our third conversation. Yeah, me too. You stay well. Happy 2024. Be fierce and safe at the same time. Okay, Phil? Thank you. Same to you. All right. Take care. Take care. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.